If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. You're going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He says, I am become a burden to my friends and useless to my country. He continues, I become dead to the world. I go hence and am no more seen. That was Quentin Colville reading a letter by Nelson that appears in the National Maritime Museum's new gallery. There is a story that they came down here, found a hole in one of the coffins and would poke a stick in and then take it out and taste the embalming fluid. And that was site manager Amanda Crowest describing a rather unpleasant practice of Victorian visitors at Farley Hungerford Castle. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The National Maritime Museum in London has just opened a major new gallery entitled Nelson Navy Nation. 
it explores the life of Britain's most famous admiral, as well as examining the wider story of the Royal Navy in this pivotal era of its history. A few days before it opened, I was lucky enough to take a tour around the gallery in the company of curator Quintin Colville. And if you'd like to see some of the objects that Quintin describes, then you'll find them at our website. Head to historyextra.com forward slash Nelson podcast. I'm here with Quintin Colville in the new National Maritime Museum Gallery, Nelson Navy and Nation. Um, so, Quintin, why did you guys decide to create this gallery? The, the aim of this gallery is to contextualise the figure of Admiral Lord Nelson within a much broader story um, of the Royal Navy, but also the British people across the long 18th century. And do you see this as a pivotal period for the Navy and Britain's maritime history? Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we, we can't hide from the fact that British naval power increased exponentially across this period. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a nationalistic gallery, but it's one that looks at a phenomenon of enormous importance to the British people. And do you feel, did you feel it was essential to have the figure of Nelson as part of this gallery? Yes, I mean, Nelson stands head and shoulders above other naval figures, not just because of his expert leadership, his brilliant skills as a commander, but also because he was a cultural phenomenon uh, in British history of the period without peer. Uh, he became a celebrity in a way that no other naval officer did, and that means that he essentially uh, he brings together the stories of, of shore and ship in a way that very few others, if anyone, does. And do you think also that having Nelson as part of this gallery will be a way to take people's interest in the gallery and then they'll discover the wider story when they're here? I, I, I hope so, because um, Nelson's story is one that has actually lasted. Um, what we think of Nelson now is not necessarily what people thought of him at the time, or in 1900 or in 1950, mm. uh, but his name has survived and his achievements and his skills have to some extent remained a benchmark. Um, so we hope that people will be drawn by that, but we absolutely want them to, to, to discuss discover a much broader story that involved ordinary people, men and women, uh, civilians ashore, sailors afloat, not just officers and not just sailors but landlubbers too. Okay so we've now moved within the gallery and we're standing by a glass case in which you can see a series of watercolours and Quentin what's particularly interesting about these pictures? Well, what the gallery concentrates on is not simply the high points of conflict and battle, but also ordinary life. And there was no one more skilled at capturing ordinary life than an officer called Gabriel Bray. Born in 1750, we've got a collection of watercolours by him from 1774 to 5, which are just unrivaled in their immediacy. They're like Polaroids. He had a real interest, in, not simply in, you know, in his peers, in officers, but in humanity in general and he captured moments that are just quotidian everyday normal um, but that's incredibly rare and what particularly interests you in, in the pictures that we're standing here looking at at the moment? Uh, well, we can see two here. One is of a, 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 a sailor carrying a hammock over his shoulder, probably bringing it up onto deck to air. Um, and the other is a, a sailor sort of crouching over the end of a cannon, uh, fishing. There's a fishing line heading down towards the water. And these are just everyday sights and utterly normal. And, uh, and, and, and these would have been part of the experience of everyone afloat. But if you don't have Gabriel Bray capturing these with his brilliant watercolours, you know nothing about them and and so this is this is the warp and weft of everyday life afloat so was it unusual then for an artist to be capturing people that 
maybe it's probably the wrong word, but such lowly people in the Navy. Well, I mean, cer- certainly lower deck sailors, um, they, they, can't t- they, they do not tend to be able to uh, afford to have their portraits painted. Officers do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have a great many um, portraits, both in this, in this gallery and in the wider collection here, uh, that document uh, officers' likenesses. But uh, although we have one here attributed to Gilray of a sailor, it's actually very rare uh, to see these individualised case studies uh, put, put into uh, put into paint for us. And I mean, obviously, these these provide a fascinating insight into the naval world at the time. Um, as an artist, are these sort of high quality images? Are these are these sort of pinnacle of the era? Um, I mean, he, he was he, he was, I believe, enormously talented, a really gifted artist. Um, not not necessarily at the peak of, of, of professional artistry, but, uh, and he was really working as an amateur. This man was a second lieutenant on board HMS Palace um, in on a cruise to, to, to West Africa in the 1770s, and um, he he was someone who dabbled, but he had brilliant uh, innate talent. And if we just move around the corner, we can see there's another picture from the same set that's actually in a different case. Um, so why is this one not being displayed with the other two? Um, the, this one, because Gabriel Bray didn't really care who he was painting, he just wanted to paint people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that we've seen are ordinary sailors. This example here is actually a self-portrait. Um, Gabriel Bray is shown uh, shaving, just you know, doing his, his, sort of his morning routine and shaving in front of a little travelling mirror um, in his cabin. Mm-hmm. Um, so this tells us about a different world and a very informal world. Um, this isn't the sort of bandbox naval officer wearing his dress uniform. Uh, this is an ordinary sailor in a rumpled white shirt um, who's shaving before his day's duty. Um, so once again, Gabriel Bray has given us a, a window onto normality um, that most portraitists were not, in, were not wanting to do and their sitters didn't either want them to do. <laughs> Yes, it's interesting that even when making a self-portrait, he focuses on the ordinary rather than the spectacular. Yes, he does. Um, and the, the fact that these are watercolours means that we cannot display them um, for an enormous period of time. And that actually give us, gives us the option of bringing out to the public other examples of his work. Yeah. Um, so there's, another, there's a beautiful image that will come in the place of this one, uh, which shows um, one of his officer, uh, well, I think a master's mate, looking through Bray's sketchbook. Um, and observe, observing some of the drawings that you can see elsewhere in the gallery. So um, this, is, this is a man of enormous ingenuity and imagination as an artist. OK, so we've now moved on sort of deeper into the gallery and we're standing by a glass case where I can see in the top left-hand corner a very sort of nicely illustrated fan. Um, Quentin, what's this object and why is it important? Well, um, the object is a, is, a, is a lady's fan from about 1740 uh, that commemorates the victory of Portobello um, in the Caribbean by Admiral Edward, Edward Vernon in 1739. One of the things that we want to do in this gallery is to demonstrate that Nelson wasn't the first or only naval celebrity. Uh, there were people who came before him and Admiral's, Admiral Vernon's achievements in the Caribbean set British society alight. People back at home thought that, that by beating the Spanish, he was unlocking untold treasures for British merchants and, and ordinary people. Um, and his likenesses and objects recording his, his doings um, really went, people went mad for them. There were, there were bonfires and celebrations in 54 towns up and down the country. And this fan is, 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 is part, of that, part of that national excitement in a way, um, combined with objects like uh, ceramics and, and coins. Um, what it also demonstrates is that the story of Britain's engagement with the naval world is not just a male one. Um, mm. There was absolute sort of female participation in the ideas of Britishness that involved sea power. 
um, and it's very important that this incredibly rare fan is is displayed um, in order to bring to life that that part of that component of the story which is often lost. So had it not been for the arrival of Horatio Nelson half a century later, would Vernon now occupy the place in the national consciousness that Nelson, that Nelson currently does? Well, I think you could probably say that not many people now know that Portobello Road in London was named after Portobello, Vern, Vernon's victory in 1739. And Nelson's, Nelson's fame and celebrity is, is so enormous, is so dramatic, that it tends to bring down a curtain um, over the acclaim uh, bestowed on his predecessors. So had, had Nelson not appeared, I think we would know, we would know Vernon a bit better. And, and do you feel that, that, that Vernon's record stands up to scrutiny today? Is he, like Nelson, is he still someone that we could admire today as a naval figure? Um, I, 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 perhaps not a, a, admire, but I, th- I think we can, we can, we can certainly recognise his achievements, which were not necessarily on a par with Nelson's. He, was not a, uh, we, he didn't have the record of a great fleet commander that Nelson did, uh, but he was certainly a dynamic, energetic and competent naval commander um, who got results. Okay, so we've now uh, turned around a corner and um, we're looking at a display case where I can see a couple of unusual looking ceramics with um, some uh, what look like courting couples on them. What's the connection here with naval history? Both of these ceramics show a, a naval couple, a, a sailor and his wife. Uh, one of them uh, shows um, the sailor on the point of departure, so he is, a, he is about to, to leave for, mm. for foreign exploits and naval service, and the other shows him returning, coming back to his wife, his lover, um, and he's also carrying a, a, a purse full of coin, so there's <laughs> the suggestion that he's done quite well from, yeah. his, from his adventures. I think where this fits into the naval story is as one of the kaleidoscope of images that the British public had of the naval sailor during this period. Um, across the 18th century, the, the exploits of the navy touched British society more and more deeply and because people had very little real experience of seeing sailors or seeing ships or see, even perhaps seeing the sea, um, they conjured up ideas and stereotypes about what the people were actually like. One of those stereotypes is this man, devoted, the faithful husband who, 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 who leaves to, you know, to bring back riches and, and comes back and is, is loving and, and, and devoted. But there were other images too, um, which you can actually see in, in, in this case, which show the, the, the sailor in a very different light, as someone <laughs> disreputable and, and pugnacious, a hard drinker, a womanizer, um, someone who is actually a really disruptive influence ashore. Um, and right in the middle of it sits a third image, which is the sailor as a patriot, um, as basically the incarnation of British national fighting spirit. Um, and this, you know, there's, a, there's a, a caricature in the same case that shows him boxing Napoleon off the face of the globe. Um, and ordinary British people, I think, must have held these images simultaneously and shifted from one to the other in different contexts. I'm guessing that all of them had an element of truth to them that sailors were all these things in, in different ways. I, I think I think they were, and and, and perhaps also sailors themselves internalised these images uh, and, and thought that this was a, a, a charismatic and attractive component of, of who they were themselves. Um, so there's this this interesting circularity about it. But there was a truth about the fact that uh, you might return uh, with with some riches from mm-hmm. naval service. Um, a prize money meant that even ordinary sailors could actually boost their income considerably um, and you know I'm sure there was a reality to, to the more disreputable end of the spectrum too. 
Do we know anything about who created these objects or who they'd have been created for? Well, I, I think it runs across a, a real spectrum. I think some of the, some of the ceramics and prints are, are, are probably to the, to the mid, perhaps to the lower end of the mm. market. But you can also see some of these same visual ideas, these same stereotypes being used in much more expensive ceramics and, and, and in silverware and, and, and beautiful lockets. So... Um, I, I think some of these ideas do translate across mm. social groupings, and perhaps some are, you know, are more specific to one than to another. OK, so now we've moved just a little way along, and I can see a, a portrait ab- above us of um, Horatio Nelson with a, a missing arm and, and a wound over his head. But below that, there's, there's a, a couple of pages of a letter that... Um, they look, look quite badly written. Now, now what's the significance of this letter? Well, I, I think this is an amazing letter. And um, what we've wanted to show through it is that Nelson was not someone who had a, a, a particularly easy path to, mm. to brilliance and to, and to command. He encountered real obstacles and also made mistakes on the way. But this letter um, was written two days after he lost his arm um, at, at uh, Santa Cruz in Tenerife. Um, it was obviously written in enormous pain. Um, it's the first letter uh, that he ever wrote using his left hand. Um, and I think it contains passages that show the, the depth of despondency, really, that he was feeling at the time. If, if I might re- read out. Sure. Um, it, um, he says, I am become a burden to my friends and useless to my country. Um, he continues, I become dead to the world. I go hence and am no more seen. Um, and he writes... I hope you will be able to give me a frigate uh, to convey the remains of my carcass to England. He's writing to a superior officer. Um, so this is extremely poignant, and actually he, he, he adds a, a sort of postscript. Um, you will excuse my scrawl, considering it is my first attempt. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a missive written absolutely in... Well, only, only a couple of days after an absolutely traumatic bat- uh, battle event. And it's actually interesting because although, although as I said earlier, his, the writing's not great, it, it is legible. I think if I tried to write with my, yes. my other hand, I don't think I'd write that clearly. So it must have taken him a long time to do that. I, th- I think it must have done. Yes, yeah, and and, and um, yeah, it, it, it is it is largely legible, but um, but it, it, in places it's it's quite clearly an enormous struggle for him to put his ideas onto paper. And also, there's another interesting object just to the left of it, which is some kind of unusual piece of cutlery. Um, yes, is, yeah. is this also connected to Nelson? It is. Um, it's, it's a combined knife and fork, and one of a number that he had made mm. um, after the loss of his arm, so that he could he, he could basically eat one-handed. Um, so it, it combines the blade of a knife with, 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 the, with the tines of a fork. And so Nelson was clearly in a very despondent place at this point. Yes. How was he able to then rally himself to go on to become an even greater naval commander? <laughs> well, he, he, he did bounce back, and, 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 and this is someone who was able to learn from mistakes. Um, actually, in, this, in, the, in the same cabinet, there's a, there's a letter um, that he wrote um, in 1798 after his flagship, the Vanguard, had been dismasted mm. in a storm. And this was you know, a really problematic thing for a commanding officer. Um, it, it was a dereliction of professional duty, in, in a sense, and he was deeply apologetic and wrote again to his commanding officer um, that the accidents which have happened to the vanguard were a just punishment for my consummate vanity, I most humbly acknowledge. But Nelson bounced back from this, and a few months later he wins his extraordinary victory at the Battle of the Nile. Um, so th- this is someone with enormous resources um, and who learns through uh, his professional experience how to hone his skills. So we've, we've moved a few paces into, further into the gallery, and we're looking at a case where there's 
quite a few weapons on display. There's an axe high up, and there's a few guns. And the gun we're looking at here, the one we're focusing on, is one that has several barrels, perhaps five, six, seven. What's the importance of this gun? Um, th- this gun is part of... Well, it, it, it's, it's an example of, of a naval technology from, from the 1780s. Um, what it is is a, is a seven-barrel volley gun. That means that when you pulled the trigger, uh, mm. all, all seven barrels uh, fired simultaneously. Um, it was... A dramatic weapon. It was quite likely to break your shoulder if you fired it, um, and it was also considered extremely dangerous to your own side because it emitted this gout of flame, uh, which could in fact set, set set fire to your own sails and rigging. Um, so I, I think Nelson, for instance, had quite a dim view of these weapons, but it gives an insight into the absolute savagery um, and uh, and the realities of, of close range warfare in this era. And for, for Nelson, one of his a- a- absolute priorities was to was of course to engage the enemy closely um, and to achieve a decisive and dramatic victory by being absolutely locked side by side with with, with with the enemy vessel and it's in that context that this weapon would have been used so I mean, British Navy in many ways was superior to other countries. Was our weaponry also ahead of the competition, so to speak? Uh, not, not, not necessarily, no. Okay. And, um, and I think this is probably an example of a, of a failed weapon system, really. It's, it's, it's an extremely eye-catching and dramatic one, but, um, but I, I don't think its, it's, it's usefulness was necessarily that extensive. Um, I think heavy, heavy ordnance, the heavy guns uh, of a warship, were really the crucial mm. battle-winning technology. Uh, sort of technologies of, of the era um, that, and, and they weren't necessarily designed to sink ships they were designed to, to, to sort of overturn cannons and to kill crews So we're strolling over just a little way along from that incredible gun and here we've, we've got well, do you know, I don't actually know what this is, so Quinton, you'll have to tell me, what is this? Um, what we're looking at is, is a bar shot, uh, which was fired um, at the Victory during the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, right. 21st of October 1805. This actually killed um, eight Royal Marines on, on board HMS Victory, um, this, this, this object itself. Uh, it demonstrates the absolute the, the, the carnage that, that could result from warfare during this period. It is an extremely important part of the story of the immediacy of naval battle, which is otherwise quite difficult to tell. Because I suppose when we think of Trafalgar, we think of the sacrifice of Nelson and then the great victory, but maybe not of the many other sacrifices that ordinary men had to make on that day. No, that's absolutely right. And, and I mean, although this, this, this gallery does concentrate and, 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 and shed light on um, Nelson's final hours, um, in particular through a, a great painting by Arthur Devis of, his, of, um, of the hours of the moment of his death, that we've, we have also uh, paid a, a lot of attention to the experiences of ordinary sailors in battle uh, because their stories are extremely important. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Quentin Colville showing me around the Nelson Navy Nation Gallery, now open at the National Maritime Museum. For more details, visit rmg.co.uk. Quintin has co-written an article about the 10 days that shaped Nelson's career, which features in our November edition. Also in the magazine, we're discussing the First World War, Richard III, ancient Greek theatre and Tudor portraits. Look out for our November issue in all good newsagents and digitally. As many of you will probably know, this week sees All Hallows' Eve. And with this in mind we sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, to pay a night visit to the apparently haunted Farley-Hungerford Castle, just outside Bath. Armed with a torch and a dictaphone, Charlotte met up with site manager Amanda Crowist, historic property steward Rachel Potter, and Wynne Scutt, assistant properties curator in the West, to learn more about the site's grisly past, from ghostly apparitions to gruesome murders. Now, rather curiously, we've not yet seen Charlotte since she went to Bath to record this interview. I popped along to the castle the next day, but found no sign of her, except for the SD card from her dictaphone, which was lying on the grass. We still hope that she might turn up soon, but in the meantime, I hope you'll enjoy what may be her last podcast outing. We're at Farley Hungerford Castle, um, just outside Bath, and we're actually standing now, aren't we, in the oldest part of the castle. It's about half past seven at night. Yes. It's pretty dark, and we've just climbed down into into what we, with the kitchens. This, these are the old kitchens, yes. Okay, um, can you just maybe just give us a little bit of a background to the castle? So this is the oldest section. When was this originally built? Um, this was built originally in about the middle of the 14th century by Sir Thomas Hungerford. Mm-hmm. And um, so this inner part, he built four towers and um, enclosed the whole area. What's lovely about coming here at this time of night, though, is that you can see two of those towers in this castle quadrate, this fortified mansion, silhouetted in the moonlight. And it's absolutely wonderful. Um, They're just sort of shells, aren't they, right? Sort of half-open shells, but towering above us. Yeah. and uh, you, you do get an impression of what this mighty castle... I mean, mainly it's to, to be impressive, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's to be a fortified mansion, to look great. I don't know what the, uh, what the merits of it defensive-wise were or if it ever saw action. I don't suppose it ever no. would Very do. It was, just, <clears throat> it was basically a status symbol. Um, and the only action it saw was very minimal in the um, Civil War when about 60 horses were stolen from outside the castle walls and one of the Hungerfords who lived here um, was holding the castle. They were on opposing sides. There were two brothers on opposing sides. Okay. And uh, so there was a bit of a set two there, I think, but very minimal and one was turfed out and the other one moved back in again. So. Okay. 
Okay, but it was sort of the, the Tudor period, wasn't it? When when there's quite a lot of scandals and there were a few murders and things like that that happened here at the castle. There were, yes. There were all sorts of goings on in the Tudor period. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of them? We're standing quite near one of the large fireplaces, aren't we? Um, in the old kitchen. We are. Um, there's a quite horrible story about a lady called Agnes Cottle who was married to the steward um, of Farley Hungerford Castle, whose name was John. Um, but she'd actually, although they weren't hard up, I don't think, and um, lived fairly well, she'd set her sights on Lord Hungerford. Um, but of course, she was married to John and had to basically get rid of him. So she employed the services of two servants and um, one night they all sat round merrily in the kitchen drinking um, and got John absolutely uh, legless, shall we say, (laughs) and then strangled him with his own neckerchief. But then, of course, they were left with this body that they didn't know what to do with. And so they decided that as they were in the kitchen and there was a big roaring fire, this was probably the easiest option. And so they put him in the fire and burnt him. Um, But at the end of all this, at this time, Lord Hungerford was away um, when all this was going on. And when he came back and found Agnes Cottle, a single lady, Mm -hmm. he thought, aha. So he up and married her. And I think they were married only for about two years was it Rachel yeah, about a couple of years I think mm. um, and then uh, Lord Hungerford died and the villagers all knew what had gone on and what Agnes had done and so um, it all caught up with her and she and the two servants were taken up to Tyburn and all three were hung so do we know did Lord Hungerford know what she'd done to her former husband well we don't know for sure but I think he must have had his suspicions mm. um, but obviously didn't do anything about it don't think she bumped him off as well, do you? Wow, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah, he only lasted for two years. He did, yes, he did. So it could well have been in this fire fireplace here. Well, I imagine it probably was. This is a nice big fireplace, plenty of room for a body. In fact, you've got room for actually t- two or three people lying mm. lying along the bottom of this. So if she had wanted to murder more people, but but actually, it only height wise, um, we've actually got grass on the top, just about sort of um, shoulder height, haven't yeah. we? So we're just seeing the bottom of the fireplace and and the ruins of this kitchen. But so so where we're standing now is probably where they were could have been sitting. Absolutely, as they you know did the. Ooh. Did her in, did him in? Mm. It's interesting that she would got away with it for two years while being married to Edward, mm. um, and there was a suggestion that it was kind of immunity from prosecution, or at least she she could get away with it because she yeah. was married to someone very wealthy. Yes. But once he died, then she lost that immunity, and off she and the servants went for trial. And just looking around us, what what else can we see? So we're in the in the kitchen part of the the castle, the old castle now. What else are we looking at? Um, I'm trying well, to look at in the dark. <laughs> yes, below us there are the old, there's the old bakehouse, mm-hmm. which has the bread oven, yeah, um, and a space for an old copper where they would have brewed ale. Okay. And to our right we can see the well, yeah. And then uh, further beyond the well are the it, there was a pleasure garden, okay. just along the edge of the castle, which we believe had fruit trees and so on in it. And then the Great Hall was directly to our right over there. Um, and if we turn around the other way, we can see the two towers at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one on the right, uh, that's the Lady Tower. 
is known as the Lady Tower now. Why is it known as that? Um, well, there's another story that's attached to that, which is about um, Lady Elizabeth Hussey. And she was married to um, another Walter, Walter Hungerford. He was actually the son of the man who's just been put in the fire as well. So he oh, grew okay. up with scandal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, lots of scandal. Um, and he, he, was not, he was always in trouble. He was not a particularly nice man, I don't think. And he um, had risen in Henry VIII's court um, through his association with Elizabeth Hussey and her family, um, who were her father was a friend of Thomas Cromwell. Mm-hmm. And it all went wrong. Something happened. Cromwell and um, Lord Walter Hungerford became sort of fell out of favour with Henry VIII. Walter Hungerford got into a lot of trouble for predicting his death and so on. There were all sorts of goings on. Um, But they fell out of favour and because Walter was cross about this, he locked his wife, Elizabeth, in this tower and left her there for nearly four years. Um, And the villagers knew that she was there and took pity on her. They, as far as we can make out, were fond of her. And they took pity on her and used to bring her food and drink anything that they could spare. I mean, I don't suppose it was very much, but they did used to bring her things. And she used to pull it up through the window in a basket. But there are also stories that she was so desperate that she had to drink her own urine because she didn't have anything to drink. And she said that Walter would bring her... Um, send his chaplain with food for her but she didn't trust him she thought that he was trying to poison her which he may have been he had a bit of a reputation as a poisoner okay she wrote to thomas cromwell cromwell as well didn't she does that letter survive i think yes yes Mm. or at least in part it does yes this is how we know um you know this is where her words have come from about the chaplain trying to poison her and so on so why would he have wanted his wife to die? Why would, he, why would she think he was trying to poison her? I don't really know. I mean, I suppose because he had this reputation anyway, mm. um, he, he was supposed to throw lavish parties at which he cooked up things like toad paste pie and um, various other horrible things. Um, why it was called that, I don't know. What it was made of, I don't know. Whether it was made of toads, who knows? We want to, but, know, we want to know, really. But, <laughs> no, I don't think we do. But people, his reputation was as a poisoner, that okay. he actually was trying to poison people at these, these events. And I suppose, you know, she must have known about all this. But why she thought he would actually want to kill her, I don't no. really know. And did she actually die in the tower or did she manage to get out? No, she got out. We're not sure how. Possibly Cromwell intervened. Okay. Um, we're not quite sure. And she was released and she actually married uh, Robert Throckmorton, who was the grandfather of two of the gunpowder plotters. Okay. And they had five daughters together, she and Robert, so... She had a fairly happy ending. I think she lived quite a ripe old age in the end. And directly opposite is is another tower, and that's that's more whole, isn't it? It is. There's a bit more of that one, and that one's called the Red Cap Tower. 
um, possibly because it had a conical, a red conical roof. Mm. But there's also a story about an evil goblin who is quite a legendary creature. I have looked him up, actually, um, called a red cap who apparently wore great big hobnail boots and uh, carried a great big scythe and hung about in towers waiting to kill unwary visitors and passers-by. And he would then dip his hat in their blood after he'd killed them. And this is why he was called a red cap. I mean, um, with a, a castle, this sort of history and these sorts of things that have happened, do you ever get people coming to say that they've seen things here at all or ghosts or strange goings on we do we have lots of stories uh people quite often tell us they felt things or they thought they've seen things people have taken photographs with sort of shadowy figures in them that we're not sure about um we've still got some of them have you we have yes um they're usually women aren't they these shadowy figures they are usually women, I believe, yes. Uh, I don't know why that would be, really. Mm. But, no. yes, they do appear to be. But you've, you've, none of you have ever <laughs> seen anything or felt anything? Not really. Rachel and I have both heard music when we've been in the chapel, uh, or just outside the chapel in the courtyard. We've both heard sort of a lady singing I can't quite make out the tune but we've had lots of visitors reporting the same thing yeah and we can't find the source of it we've walked around and tried to see if there's somebody with a radio or something and can't find it no no um and we've had um one or two other experiences Really, there was a lady who worked here for a while, a stonemason mm. called Lisa, who said she'd seen somebody um, walking along towards her and then she'd glanced away and when she looked back, this person had disappeared. It was a lady in a long dress. Mm. Um, and I went out shortly afterwards and she said to me, did you see that lady? But I hadn't <laughs> seen her. And we have got dead people on site. Really? Well, there are the lead coffins down in the crypt. Oh, perhaps we should. Which are have really a, exciting. Yeah. Perhaps we should have a little look in the crypt then. I think so. So we're we're in the in the crypt now, um, and there's these amazing coffins. Um, they're, they're lead coffins, aren't they? And they're body shaped. They're not coffin shaped. They're sort of body shaped, so they have heads. And with actual carved women's faces. Well, uh, yes, this one has got a lovely sort of death mask on it. The actual f- features of the face and the cloth. I suppose it's the uh, the um, what do you call it? The, the the cloth that's wrapped around the body. Mm, it's actually the round the head, the binding. Um, but this. Um, well, we can't actually be sure which ones are men and which ones are women, apart from the facial features. And this does look like a woman. And, but there's a very strange sort of indentation on the top, mm-hmm. like an oval dish. Um, so her chest isn't sticking out there, it's actually dish-shaped. And one idea is that actually maybe it was the, um, another coffin that sat on there, maybe the coffin of a child. Oh, oh, and if you, yeah. if you look round to the other side of the room, there are these... Two small baby coffins. Again, well, shaped like babies. You know, you've just got the shape of the head and the tapering shape of the body. 
that may be what's, uh, what's provided that indentation. But they were done by plumbers. Really? We were talking about this earlier on, about plum being, meaning lead. So oh, we please. think of plumbers as just doing water pipes mm. now, but of course it was someone, anybody who did lead work. And um, um, so, and we were also looking up as to why why they did make mm. these elaborate lead coffins and why they were fashionable. They're very shallow as well, aren't they? Yeah, well, we think that it's, they haven't just been shaped by the plumber to imitate the body, to shape round mm. the body, but they've also sunk in time. Yeah. So they've taken up the shape of the body. So this one here with the indentation, the, the, the sort of dish-shaped indentation over the chest, if you look further down the coffin, yeah. you can almost see the outline of the legs. And some knees almost, can't you? Sort of knees. Yes. Difficult to know whether that's been fashioned by the plumber or whether oh, that's yeah. fashioned by time, and actually it's just sunk over there. But... The reason that they sealed these coffins and they encapsulated them in lead was because with, with posh people, mm-hmm. it took quite a lot of a while to invite all the guests to the funeral and to organise the funeral because mm-hmm. you had so many people to invite. So, um, and if you left the body, they didn't have any freezing facilities as you would now. Yeah. Um, so they encapsulate them to stop all fluids and gases escaping. Um, so Gosh. it would be completely sealed. So whatever happens to the body happens inside. inside that sealed environment and you don't gas yourselves out. They are absolutely amazing. I mean, how, how unusual are they? Um, there are quite a, there are a few of them, sort of 15th, 16th, they're, they're quite fashionable. Mm-hmm. And of course the Romans use lead coffins, but not in the same way. Yeah. Um, these are called anthropoid coffins, which are famous at that time. Some of them have got a very sort of crude-shaped face on them, but others have got a really detailed, yeah. intricate face. Rather too small for the face, the actual face really. It's like almost a miniature version, wouldn't you say? That it's yeah. it's not the right shape for the size of the coffin. It's no, a small it's not face. Too small. And even um, the, the 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 little tiny ones look very small as well, don't they? I mean, they do. Those could, must be very small children. Mm. The other strange thing is that a lot of them have these sort of. Um, um, breasts and nipples actually on them. Now that's that hasn't actually shaped itself over time. That's a deliberate artifice of the plumbers to shape that. But it looks like the men have got that too. So yeah. um, and they're quite strange. Strange. They're very stylized. So when people have asked to to have been buried and to have had coffins like this made for them before they died, or was it just a t- traditional thing? That's how. Fashionable at that time and um, presumably a function of needing to keep the bodies mm. preserved while you arrange a funeral. And it's just a very posh family at that time. It's Ed, we think it's Edward Hungerford, his wife and children, and daughter-in-law, I think, is yes. the theory? Yes, And they've never been opened or unsealed or anything? No. The only story we've got about them is from the Victorian era, um, where we all know how interested and inquisitive the Victorians were, and there is a story that they came down here, um, found a hole in one of the coffins and would poke a stick in and then take it out and taste the embalming fluid. Ooh. Why they would want to do that, I have no idea. And whether it's true, I don't know. But um, that's the story. And do, we, do we know of any of them that have any gaps or anything in them? Have, we, have they been looked at? And This one over here, you can see... There's sort of a shape where a hole's been plugged up in it. Whether that was what they used to stick the stick through or just a defect, I don't know. Yeah. So you've got one, two, three, four, five. So you've got six adults by looks of things and two, two, two children. children. Yes. 
It's quite a small crypt, isn't it, for the... Would there have been more at some point, do you think, in here? Well, um, we... Perhaps not in here, but we believe there's another crypt. That, okay. um, but sadly, it's fallen in. A lot of it has... The masonry has collapsed and you can't get into it. So we don't know who's in there. Earlier Hungerfords, presumably. Yeah. And this is believed to be four men, right. two women, two children. But we can't be absolutely certain no. of that. I think it's just based on the shapes of the faces and that sort of thing, isn't it? Yes. So um, it's a really interesting set. Normally the public can, can, uh, can, can look at these. Obviously we don't want people sitting on them. The lead no. is, is a pliable, you know, it's like plasticine almost. But, yeah. um, so, so we have to keep the public away. But you can look through the grating any day when the, yeah. the, the castle is open and look at these extraordinary figures. Were they originally encased in, in, wo in wood? Were they inside anything else? Yes, they were. They had okay. wooden coffins around them, um, but they've obviously just rotted away mm. and disappeared. And there were also... Um, some of their organs were in sort of chalices that were in here as well. Apparently there was a white leather-covered chalice that had... Um, internal organs, I think harp, a heart, mm. perhaps a liver or something in it as well, um, and probably more than one, but they have somehow disappeared over the years. It's a very, it's a, it's a very Egyptian way of, you know, there's, there's definite kind of similarities, isn't there? It is, but we don't actually get contact or understanding of Egyptians really until... Um, the 1800s, when Napoleon mm. invades that's Egypt, right, yeah. you know, that's when all that happens. So, um, unless they're reading Herodotus or something, who might be referring to, to Egyptian practices, um, you know, from classical texts, but no, I suspect it's probably a, a more or less in independent invention mm. um, in, in Europe at that time. Gosh. So this is the chapel, which is just above the crypt we've just come out of. So how, how old is the chapel? Does this go right back to the, the castle's beginnings? It does, yes. It was originally the chapel for the village. Right. It, it, it was the village chapel. And then when Lord Walter I um, extended the castle and built the curtain wall, he enclosed the chapel and built another church in the village for the villagers. Okay. So this is, in a sense, the parish church and what a parish church would look like in the 15th century then? Yes. Or late, late 14th, indeed, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, always, it's almost sort of barn-like, isn't it, in its structure? If you look at the, the ceiling and um, there's a medieval barn quite near me and it just struck me when I was walking in, it just reminded me a little bit of that with the, the huge beams above us and the wooden... It's a beautiful wooden roof, isn't mm. it? But actually, quite the walls are really quite plain and white, and not yeah. something that you'd you'd expect from much later. But yes. over in the right-hand corner, you can see St George, a beautiful painting of St George, and um, one of the Hungerfords was made Order of the Garter. Okay. Um, so, and there were only twenty-six of them in the country mm -hmm. who, who had the Order of the Garter, and somewhere on here is a figure, Amanda, can you, you can probably point it out, is a figure of Hungerford himself kneeling oh, yes. next to St George. It's quite hard to see, but he is called the Kneeling Knight. Um, he's been examined in great detail, and 
that's we believe it's Walter Hungerford. And this is painted directly onto the wall, isn't it? It's a yes, um, a wall painting. So, and when do we think this was this was painted? Sorry, uh, mid fourteen hundreds, I think, isn't it? Um, yes. Because it was at Agincourt that he believed the the king believed that uh, their win had been. Um, he attributed it to St George and then made him uh, the patron of the Order of the Garter and the patron saint. So before that it had been the Anglo-Saxon St Edmund who had been our patron saint and now George was uh, the patron saint of England and the patron of the Order of the Garter. So this was a tremendous um, honour for Hungerford to mm. be a member of the only 26 knights of the Order of the Garter. And that's why he would have had this painted onto, the, onto his yes. chapel. And presumably at that time, this whole... Um, I mean, it's quite faded now, but this whole chapel would have been quite gaudily painted. I mean, we're mm. lucky just to have this... I mean, it's an amazing condition, isn't it, considering its age? You know, you can see the, the, you know, the oranges and the blues coming through. I mean, um, yeah, you wouldn't think it was that old, really, would you? No. Because of the colours. It's beautiful. That was our found footage of Charlotte Hodgman speaking to staff at Farley Hungerford Castle. You can see a gallery of images of some of the objects and places mentioned in the podcast, including the lead coffins, at historyextra.com forward slash spooky. And if you'd like to head over to Farley Hungerford, then I can tell you that they'll be opening the crypt up specially for Halloween from noon to 3pm from the 31st of October to the 3rd of November. For more information about the castle, visit english-heritage.org.uk. Well, that's almost all for this week. As always, get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might even read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra and you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And we have a website, of course, too, at historyextra.com, where you'll find news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. Next week, we're going to be joined by two fantastic historians, Dominic Sambrook and Margaret Macmillan, who will be discussing the Cold War and the First World War, respectively. So make sure you tune in for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Mm-hmm.